Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Johnson, and this morning's passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's on page 247 in the chair Bibles, if you want to follow along there. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sokah in Judah and kept and camped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Paul and the, men gather, uh, and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin that was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle, or to the Israelite battle formations, why do, you, why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and during Saul's reign, he was already an old man. Jesse's three eldest sons had followed Saul to war. Their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, and Shammah, the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David had kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and every and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel, bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also, take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. There with Saul and all his men in the, in Israel, all his men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning and left the flock with someone to keep it loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his, his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, Do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. 
What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding, that is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here? He asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now? Protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, so he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. But Saul said, you can't fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he has been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had, put, and had him put on armor. David strapped a sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in, his pou- in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then... With the sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David and the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to him, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine said to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistines and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off its head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. 
When the, Phil- when the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, Whose son is this, is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live, I don't know, Abner replied. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Well done, Mr. Johnson. Good morning. So here we are, David and Goliath. Have you heard of them? Got a massive human specimen with exceptional masculine traits. This gladiator coming face to face with a pimple faced teenager who takes care of sheep. One is outfitted with Kevlar, the other has pebbles. Goliath has never lost a fight. David has probably never been in a fight. And against all odds, this shepherd boy launches a stone and it lands exactly where it needs to land and kills the giant. Everybody, of course, knows this story. Even outside the church, this is a very familiar story, is it not? It's the stuff of legends. So let me ask you this question, help out a pastor here. What exactly is the point of this passage? If I were to give you 10 minutes to think about crafting one sentence to summarize the point of this passage, what would you write down? What is the main point here? One pastor has pointed out a few different readings of this passage that I'd like to kind of think through with you. First of all, there's the secular reading, the mythological reading, or maybe we would say the Hoosiers interpretation. Even though you can be the complete underdog like the Hickory Huskers, and you're going against the big bad South Bend Bears, with some courage, even the little guys can conquer their giants. Now, that feels pretty good to us. We want to hear that reading. Then there's the psychological reading popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Now, what is this book all about? Well, uh, he looks at history and psychological trends to show that underdogs have the advantage. And so it's possible to turn weakness into strength. That sounds pretty good, right? Then there's the inspirational Christian reading This is an exclusively moral reading of this story. It's not just dare to be Daniel, it's dare to be David. And so you can face your giants of life, whatever that might be, with positive thinking and some courage. Here's a quote from a popular pastor. I will not name names. Quote, your Goliath may not carry a sword, but he brandishes blades of abuse and depression and unemployment. David had five stones. He made Five decisions. Pray, produce, persist, provide, be passionate. So the next time Goliath wakes up in your life, reach for one of those stones. Friends, is this the main thrust of this story? A sort of allegorical rendering of David and Goliath? 
Now, of course, we have battles to fight. We have battles to fight every day, every week. Battles in our minds to believe the truth. Battles with other people, sometimes interpersonal struggles. Battles in the workplace or schools. Battles in our parenting. Battles in our marriages. Battles within ourselves, certainly. And these battles are intensely personal and spiritual. They're not just external and physically physical. The Bible, in fact, tells us that we have three enemies our flesh, the devil, and this world. So how are we going to fight our spiritual battles? What is this story? How might this story help us? Now, we often try to be the hero. We try to be the Savior. We look sometimes to others to be the hero or the Savior. And of course, there's lessons for us here. We want to be faithful and brave like David. But is that the main idea here? I think the message of 1 Samuel 17, this is what I want to commend to you. I think the message of 1 Samuel 17 is not primarily that we're called to be like David. It's the good news that we have a David. All right, so here's the main point in the sentence. I guess that could have been my main point. Here's my main point. (laughs) God, and you'll see it in your notes and in your bulletin as well, God fights for his people by providing a champion who will slay their enemies. God fights for his people. He doesn't ignore our battles. He steps right into our battles, but he provides his own champion. It's not us. It's somebody else. It's external to us. And this champion is is seemingly weak. He's seemingly insignificant, as we will see in chapter 17, but he will slay our enemies. Okay, so I want to point out three clashes in this story, Uh, kind of three comparisons, character comparisons. The first one you'll see is God and Goliath, God and Goliath. Now, before we jump into chapter 17, we have to take note of chapter 16. And Brandon Smith, by the way, if you didn't hear his sermon from last week, please go back and listen to it. It was very good, very edifying. At the end of chapter 16, we'll notice that David becomes Saul's armor bearer. Look at verse 21 of chapter, uh, verse 21 of chapter 16. Verse 21 of chapter 16. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much and David became his armor bearer. Now chapter 17, this might be a little difficult to understand, but it's important. Chapter 17 actually takes place before David becomes his armor bearer. So chapter 17, this David and Goliath story is situated kind of in the first half of verse 21, when David was kind of going back and forth between the palace and his home. Now, after this great scene with Goliath, that's when he becomes officially the armor bearer. Okay, so let's turn to 17 now. In these opening verses, notice there's the setting of our story. What is happening here? Well, Israel is in the promised land, but they're constantly under threat of foreign invaders. They've chosen a king like the nations to protect them, and his name is Saul. He's physically impressive. He looked the part, but he didn't play the part. In fact, he was a disaster. In 1 Samuel 16, God essentially tells Israel, listen, you've had your pick, now it's my turn. And his choice, of course, is quite surprising. He picks the runt of the litter. He picks this guy without any kingly qualifications. And yet in David, God sees a man after his own heart. Saul is king. David is anointed. Israel's enemies, the Philistines, they're invading. Notice they're in Judah. 
The Philistines have gathered up on one mountain. The Israelites are on another mountain. What's going to happen in the valley? That's what our story is all about. Now notice Goliath is introduced in verse 4. And notice the narrator takes a lot of time to describe this ferocious man. He describes his height. He's about 10 foot tall. You may not know this, the tallest man in the world in at least recent history. It's a guy named Robert Wadlow. He died in 1940. He stood 8 foot tall, 11 inches. Now Goliath is even taller still, about a foot taller. And then the narrator, notice, goes into great detail about Goliath's hardware. He's wearing 126 pounds of armor. His spear, the head of his spear, weighs 16 pounds. So this guy is truly menacing. He is ferocious. He is intense. But it's not just his appearance that is jolting here. We've got to read the first three verses here, verses 8 through 10, of this kind of hairy-chested man's insults and challenges to Israel. This guy is coming across as obviously quite evil and quite demonstrative, and he's challenging not only Israel, but Israel's God. Now, if you know the story of Achilles and Hector during the Trojan War, so this is from the Iliad, it was something like this, okay? So Israel would nominate their champion for kind of a winner-takes-all, one-on-one competition, uh, and, and, and he would face Goliath, who would, of course, represent the Philistines. So here's ferocious Goliath and taunting Goliath. Well, how will Saul and Israel respond? Notice verse 11. They're both impressed and depressed, right? I mean, this is a terrifying scene. They do not know what to do. Now, this isn't the first time Israel faced the giants. Think back with me, uh, back into the Old Testament, into, excuse me, into the book of Exodus. God rescues Israel from slavery. He brings them to the promised land. And right before that, Moses sends 12 spies to kind of scope things out. Remember this? And 10 of those spies, they come back and they conclude, listen, we saw giants there. That's literal. They literally saw giants. And we are like grasshoppers to them. But then there's the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua, who come back and they say, listen, we saw those giants. Yeah, we are kind of like those grasshoppers, but the Lord will give us this land. They had faith. But Israel, the nation of Israel, feared those giants so much that they refused to take the land. Now the Philistines have encroached deep into Israelite territory. They've undone the conquest of the land achieved by Joshua. And once again, God's people are cowering. One of those giants have returned, probably a descendant of those ancient giants that the spies saw. So Israel failed to enter the land because of giants, and they spent 40 years in the wilderness as a result. Notice, friends, Goliath taunts Israel every morning and evening for 40 days. This is no coincidence. They are being tested again by God. Will they have faith in God, or will they trust their eyes? But friends, Goliath isn't just a giant. He's also a snake. You're like, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 5. Notice again the description of his armor. In verse 5, it says he's wearing scale armor. Goliath has scales on his body. He's presented to us as a snake. So here we have a serpent defying the armies of God just as he attacked Adam and Eve with lies and threats in the garden. Remember that? And Adam didn't, didn't, wasn't able to kind of subdue and control that snake as he was supposed to do. That was his job. And so this time in this valley, 
Who is going to save God's people? Do we have a snake tamer around? Today, our lives seem to be right smack dab in the middle of this sort of clash between God and between the serpent. We often feel terrorized by Satan, by his minions. He is aiming to destroy our faith, especially when trials come. He's aiming to push us into tempting situations or introduce mistrust and suspicion into our relationships. He puts doubts in our marriages. He slyly suggests that you should escape difficulty with just a few small sins. After all, you deserve it. And in the midst of all of this, we wonder as God's people, don't we? Where is God? He seems silent. He seems absent. In fact, in this chapter, in the first 11 verses, God is pretty absent, isn't he? Or maybe our concern is not just personal, but global. We look around and we see countless acts of evil and injustice, whether it's the infiltration of secular ethics, not only in our educational institutions, but now in our schools and our workplaces. Maybe it's just the, the continuing presence of human trafficking in this world, something that we don't often think about. Or abortion. You know, as we're thinking about abortion, even though we've had a great victory in uh, 2022, it's still happening, right? Or, or we could just consider the fact that Jesus is continually being mocked in our broader culture, right? And so we wonder, how long will God put up with this? How long will he allow this sort of defiance against himself? We sort of identify ourselves with Saul and Israel. We're scared often. We've lost the will to fight. We become paralyzed with fear, which then pacifies us into inaction. So what, what hope do we have? What hope does God's people have, whether it's Israel then or us today? Well, you're here at church. You know the, the right answer to this question. Our hope is in the Lord, isn't it? Our hope is in the Lord. And what that means is as we kind of unpack that statement that we kind of throw around so much, our hope is in the Lord. What, what that's grounded in is that God has made promises. In fact, I want you to listen to one of the earliest gospel promises. We heard it last week. We've heard it as we went through the Advent series. Let me state it again. This is one of the juiciest promises. This is in Genesis 3, verse 15. And God is cursing the Satan, but embedded in this curse is a gospel promise. And it's, it's still the thing that we're hoping in to this day. God says, I will put hostility between you, serpents, and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, there's going to be a war between God's people and God's enemies. Satan is the father of lies. And here before us in this story, we've got Goliath, one of Satan's offspring, facing off against the woman's offspring with God's people. And friends, down through the centuries, as we look across the history of the Bible, but also the history of the church, we've seen the seed of the woman face off against the seed of the serpent, right? We can trace the line of God's people being opposed by other entities, whether it's the book of Acts, and we see this, this little church flourishing in Jerusalem, and, and the opposition from the Jews and from the secular world, the Romans. We think about Christians being thrown to the lions, Christians being beheaded in the first few centuries. We fast forward through a multitude of other examples I could give you, perhaps you're thinking about as well. And we think about even 70 years ago or so, German Christians being persecuted with their lives under the Nazi regime. We think about modern times, even in the last five years, we think about Christians in North Korea or Iran. 
who are being persecuted and killed for their faith. Since the beginning of time, there has been a war, a war waged between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But then listen to this. The end of Genesis 3, verse 15, God says, he, that's the seed of the woman, will strike your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. There it is. Here's the great promise of the Bible. God will one day provide a human champion who will be hurt, yes, by Satan, but who will eventually crush him, crush his head. Who is the serpent crusher? That is the great tension. That's the great question that the entire kind of story of the Bible seeks to answer, but it does so so slowly, right? So we're, we're going through the Bible and we're like, okay, Adam and Adam, uh, I'm sorry, Cain and Abel, they didn't work out, so maybe it's Seth, Adam and Eve's third child. Well, he ended up dying. Well, kind of fast forward. Okay, so the, the people of God, they, they die under his judgment because of their evil and, and God's gonna restart with Noah. Maybe it's Noah. Well, he wasn't perfect. He ended up dying. Well, maybe it's Moses or maybe it's Elijah. And, and we start to see all of these wonderful characters that are under the seed of the woman and, and yet they die off and the serpent continues to live. So who is this serpent crusher? And as we come to 1 Samuel 17, we think maybe it's David. That brings us to the second clash, and it's a comparison between David and Saul. Now, we think that David and Saul are on the same team, and in many ways they are on the same team, and yet there's such a character contrast between these two as we will see. So put your eyes on verses 12 through 40. Now, the main problem Israel had wasn't Goliath, actually. Their main problem was that they trusted in Saul. When Israel demanded a king like the nations, they wanted him to go out and fight their battles. He was chosen because in part he was tall and good looking and, and big. I mean, why isn't Saul leading his people into battle? Why isn't Saul fighting Goliath on behalf of Israel? That, that, that's the kind of king he was back in chapter 11. He was fighting their battles. But now, as we saw in chapter 16, the Spirit has departed him. So here, Israel was learning one of the dangers of judging a king solely based on worldly stature. Saul is a grasshopper compared to Goliath. Friends, when we rely on height to save us, there's always someone taller. When we rely on intelligence to save us, there's always someone wiser. When we rely on riches to save us, there's going to be someone richer. There's always someone more impressive when we look at worldly appearances, right? And so God presents his chosen champion into the story of David. He's a teenager. He's out in some field. He's in Bethlehem with his dad's sheep. He becomes this errand boy, bringing bread and cheese to his brothers at their military camp. And, and as we're leading, reading this description, especially juxtaposed to this great and ferocious man, Goliath, I mean, it just all feels so understated and low-key and plain, Right? David is unimpressive. His, his context, his story, his connection to this army, it's just so ordinary. Everything is so casual here, right? And yet we know that God is working quite intentionally. I mean, doesn't this all sound just too familiar? The gift from Bethlehem was coming quietly to God's people, much like when the son of David would come. 
Philip Brooks, who's the author of O Little Town of Bethlehem, he says this, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Friends, I hope you have eyes to see. I hope I can help you see some of these connections. So <clears throat> David shows up from Bethlehem and he's on the battlefield and, and, and guess what he hears? Well, he hears with his own two years, Goliath's speech. And, and look at how this shepherd boy, David, responds. Look at verse 26 with me. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Oh, like we just want to, I don't know, like start yelling or screaming or something, right? And this is just the first part of his speeches. His bigger speech is coming in verses 45 and following. And so what do we see here? Well, David injects the first theological note into this story. Oh, yeah, there's God. That's basically what he brings up, right? I mean, these are David's first words in the Bible. Up to this point, he's just a character. He's an important character, but he's a silent character. And now he breaks his silence. And when he does, I want you to notice, he brings a whole new worldview. It's not a worldview that Saul has. It's not a worldview that Israel has embraced. He basically says, listen, guys, doesn't, doesn't having a living God make a difference in all of this? I mean, he's uncircumcised, but we're not. We are God's covenant people. We live connected to this God. Why, why would God then be indifferent to this monster's defiance? God cares about this. Two foundational truths should make all the difference for your battles and mine. The first one is simply this. There is a God. There is a God who is greater than all of our enemies. Friends, do you believe that? That's the first truth. The second truth is this, and he's with us. And he's with us. He's on our side. He's made a covenant by the blood of his son, Jesus. You know, the tragedy is that were someone to hear our thoughts and words during our battles, they might never guess that we have a living God who loves us and keeps us. So how, how do we so quickly forget this? Why do we struggle with spiritual amnesia when we come face to face with trouble? David's question in verse 26 is not some kind of magical charm for, for solving every problem. You know, just you have to kind of show this sort of defiance and then God's going to come and rescue you. That's not it at all. But, but there's some instruction here for us. It shows us how crucial it is that we have the right starting point and that we raise the right questions from the start. Our lives as Christians, our collective life here at Faith Church requires theocentric thinking, friends. There is a God there is a God and he is good and he is covenanted with his people by the blood of Jesus. And that should make all the difference. And like David, sometimes we too are called to speak up. You know, I think our ministry today, especially in kind of this 21st century world that we live in right now, is a ministry, I believe, of courageous speaking, courageous words. We should be saying quite often, hey, hey world, there is a God, and you shouldn't defy him. Is that something on your lips? Is that something on my lips? John Calvin once remarked, quote, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. 
Friends, David didn't remain silent, did he? Well, how about you and me? In the face of evil, in the face of injustice, will you and I bark for the glory of the Lord? Will we speak up for God? Will we speak up for his people? Will we speak up for the peace, the shalom of society? Because we believe God's ways are not just good for us inside the church, they're good for them outside the church. Will defending God's honor, that's something that David is doing here, right? Will defending God's honor matter more than preserving our social advantage or workplace reputations? As Christians, we are no longer part of the moral majority in our country. Our platform as Christians has been reduced, as you know. God continues to be mocked. His ways continue to be sullied. Our master is being attacked and challenged. So friends, how will we respond? I think it's time to bark. Now, when I say that, please don't get me wrong. Let me explain a little bit. I'm not talking about kind of that worldly, uh, ungodly uh, outrage that we see sometimes outside the church, right? I'm talking about a, a deep concern that has been shaped by God and who he is and his honor, his namesake, as well as his ways, a, a deep shaping that comes from being kind of... Um, uh, um, um, in the Word and sitting under the Word. And when you're deeply concerned in that manner, you're going to speak up. Um, I'm, I'm not saying angrily or unkindly. I'm saying, hey, let's embrace the prophetic minority role that God has given us, always with reasonable arguments, as winsome, as loving as possible, but also as clear as possible. This is no time to run or to hide out of fear or, or fight and claw with worldly weapons and attitudes, nor cave and capitulate to conspiracy theories or critical theories. We are the church. And friends, we have a better word like David. There is a God and he loves his people. We are in covenant with him. Listen, we're not trying to win some, some culture war that's out there. We want to speak boldly for the sake of God's honor, the good of our churches, but also the shalom of our society. And what's the, what's the weapon that the Lord has handed us? It's not physical in nature. It's spiritual. He's given us the gospel, which according to Paul in Romans chapter 1 is the power of God unto salvation. That is our weapon of choice. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So let me ask you, friends, will we choose to live not by lies and to speak up? Friends, where in your world right now is God or his ways being defied? How might you speak up? Is it at school? Is it in the workplace? Is it in your neighborhoods? What about your family? Maybe it's your extended family. You know, it's interesting. David his family was a little difficult too. Notice Eliab in this story. His older brother gets mad after hearing about David's words. Do you see that? This is a really, you know, common domestic sort of scene, right? All too familiar. David, <laughs> older brothers, right? David, stop trying to be more than you are. I know you. Come on, man. <laughs> and David responds with, you know, more familiar words that are probably in so many, you know, heard in so many modern families. Now, oh, what have I done? Can I just talk? Centuries from now, there would be a son of David 
who would also be scorned by his family. And so if you receive pushback from your family as you are trying to speak up for the gospel, as you're trying to promote Christ in your family, be encouraged by the fact that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus himself. Well, David's courageous words were so starkly different than what the rest of the Israelite camp was experiencing that they kind of made their way to Saul's ears as well. And David tells Saul, notice, hey, I will be that champion. He asked to be made Israel's champion. And you can kind of hear in David's voice, of course, um, you know, courage. But look at how Saul responds in verse 33. He's looking at the outward appearance, right? He's, he's forgotten about God. David, you're too young. Goliath is so experienced. And then starting in verse 36, David recounts how as a shepherd, he's killed lions and bears to protect the sheep. Let's look at those verses together. Starting in verse 36. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So you could just kind of hear and feel his great confidence in the Lord. You see, friends, to David, when Goliath started defying God, he almost ceased to be a human and became no more than a bear or a lion. Adam in the garden failed to rule over that serpent, right? And where Adam failed, David would succeed. David would become the beast master, taking dominion over bears and lions and now even serpents. Friends, David was the new Adam that Israel had been longing for. And so Saul agrees with David. Okay, you can go ahead and do this. And then he tries to kind of outfit David with his own armor. This was his strategy for fighting Israel's enemies, right? So, oh, Goliath has armor? Well, we've got to get our champion some armor too. Come over here, David, right? And and David has a different sort of strategy for fighting God's battles. Saul believed he had to become a king like the nations to fight the kings of the nations. Saul's problem is that he shared Goliath's perspective. He believes that power is found in armor and weapons. But David is different, isn't he? Notice David went out to fight Goliath dressed like a shepherd. He faced the enemies of God without the trappings of a king like the nations. His gear wasn't just an expression of personal piety and humility. It's an expression of trust in the God of angel armies. And there's wonderful applications for us today. Friends, do you use worldly means in your battles? Something is off in your office, so you use force and manipulation to get your way. Your children aren't obeying, so you either cower to their whims, refusing to discipline, or you harshly reprimand and punish them, crushing them into obedience. Maybe God puts you in a difficult set of circumstances. Maybe it's chronic pain or a strained relationship or job loss, and you choose to battle with just a little bit of, it's okay, God, sinful escape. Or maybe in your evangelism, you're passionate about sharing Christ, and you think that your charm and your cunning and your wit and your personality and your persuasiveness is surely sufficient to help someone recognize the lordship of Christ. Friends, this is all worldly weaponry. This is the way of Saul. This is not the way of David. 
Don't take up worldly arms to fight your battles. Don't trust human ingenuity and human strategy to slay your spiritual enemies. We must fight spiritual battles with spiritual resources. And our resources as Christians, they're found in Christ, aren't they? Christ who is the son of David. Well, let's get to the third and most obvious clash, David and Goliath, verses 41 through 58. Now we've come to the great climax of the story. And, and actually, this, this climax isn't David killing Goliath or lopping off his head with a sword. You know, if you watch a cartoon or a movie, perhaps that's kind of like where the whole scene leads to. And it's certainly an epic scene. But the climax, as you're looking at this as a literary document, the climax is in David's Braveheart-like speech in verses 45 through 47. In fact, you'll notice there's 66 words in David's speech. There's only 30 plus words in the lopping off of this guy's head and his death. You know, so after all the anticipation and building up of tension, the kill shot seems to come so quickly. It's like a shocking first round KO. And you've paid, I mean, you've been paying tickets, right? I mean, lots of money for these tickets. And the guy goes down in the first round. That's how it feels, right? But but before all that, Goliath, we have to talk about his ability in the smack talk. (laughs) He is a good smack talker up there with the best of them, right? I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, NBA players when they go and posterize someone, say they dunk over someone else and they're running back to play defense and they do this. You see them like do that. And what they're doing is they're saying he's too short. The defender was too short. That's kind of like what David's doing, or I'm sorry, Goliath is doing here towards David. He's too short. This guy's got, what, stubble on his chin? He's so green. He doesn't know anything. You're insulting me by making him your champion. That's what Goliath is saying. And David responds. Let me read these verses because they are so uh, engaging. Starting verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. David's pretty good too, huh? Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Oh, so good, right? So juicy. I mean, he's matching Goliath's spicy speech for some some of his own. But more importantly, notice the content of David's speech. He meets this defiance in Goliath with a stubborn and divinely inspired defiance of his own. I'm going to take you down. And all the earth will know from the box score of tomorrow's papers that there is a God. He's real and he rules over you and he's our God. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God whom you have ridiculed, will show what puny powers you have. Friends, God cannot be mocked forever. He cannot be mocked forever. You may wonder with me, um, why doesn't he just kind of blow up this world with all its evil and injustices and suffering and so forth? You know, why doesn't he just kind of take out this world? Well, it's because he's relentlessly patient as well, is he not? 
He is a patient God, but not forever. Not forever. One day, there's a coming a judgment day where he will right every wrong, just as he writes the wrong here in the Valley of Elah. This is just a little miniature picture of the judgment that is coming this whole world. But there's a greater emphasis I want you to notice in David's speech. It's that Yahweh doesn't save by sword or spear. He saves, he brings victory, he brings salvation through what the world would regard as weakness and folly. Weakness has been the theme of the last couple chapters as we've been studying David and his character in particular. David is weak, his weapons are weak, his experience is weak. Everybody around him thinks he's weak. Big brother says, hey, you're a pain. You know, Saul warns, hey, you're green. And then Goliath sneers, you're puny. But he is the chosen one. And his strength is in the Lord. How often do we see this theme of strength and weakness throughout the scriptures? Just one example, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Friends, what matters is not whether you have the best weapons, but whether you have the real God with you. In fact, your inadequacy may, may be precisely your qualification for serving the Lord, for his strength shines most brightly behind the foreground of your weakness. And so let me just ask you, do you feel weak this morning? Do you feel insignificant this morning? Do you feel small this morning in the world's eyes? I, I hope that's the case. Sounds kind of strange. I hope that's the case because this is your chance to lean into the God of angel armies. This is your moment to see his power reside in you. Friends, you don't need the weapons of this world. You need the God who rules over this world. And if you're covenanted to him by the blood of Jesus, he is with you. I want you to take note of how the story kind of ends. The stone kills Goliath. David cuts off his head. We see that in verse 51. Goliath dressed like a serpent with scale armor, and he dies like a serpent with a headshot, right, with a head wound. And then the, the heroism of David inspires the whole army to go off and rout and plunder the Philistines. Notice Saul inquires about David's family and lineage so he can give him this family reward. That's how the story kind of closes. So what have we seen here? We've seen that God fights for his people by providing a seemingly weak and insignificant champion who will slay his people's enemies, give them victory and riches. But of course, we can't close this message off today without recognizing how it's connected to the bigger story of the Bible. For it's not David that is the ultimate serpent crusher. You, you and I know the answer to this or the punchline here. It's Jesus. What we see in the Valley of Allah is a mini version of the victory that God's son Jesus has accomplished for us. We stand on the hillside, as it were, surveying the sweep of human history. And down in the valley, we see our David, our Christ, our seemingly insignificant champion Jesus entering the battle armed with a beam of wood on his shoulders. And we see him face the snake who has been taunting, who has been terrorizing not only him, but his people. 
And this Jesus appears to be so small, so foolish compared to the might of Rome. He seems to be so weak, so weak compared to the power of the serpent. But he enters the battle bravely, entrusting himself to God. And you can hear his, you know, brave heart-like speech. You come against me with sword and spear, with, with lies and threats and accusations, with sin and condemnation and death. But I have come against you, Satan, in the name of the Lord, whom you have defied. This day you may strike my heel, but I'm going to crush your head. And as we look, as we, we see the seeming defeat of this cross, we see it turn into the sweet victory of an empty tomb. Brothers and sisters, we have our David in Christ. Now, we all want to be like David in this story, and we should. We should face temptation with courage. We should trust in God's power, not our own. We should respond with faith and not fear. We should resist the snake at every turn. But in the end, we're more like Eliab in this story, not trusting in Christ to deliver us from the snake. Or, or maybe we're like Saul, trusting in our own weapons and armor more than trusting in God. Or maybe we're a lot like Israel, feeling powerless and fearful. But friends, what did God do for Eliab and for Saul and for all of Israel? He gave him a David. The message of the Bible is not that we're called to save the world. The message is that we have a Savior. We have a David. And so, brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. He has come to fight for you. He has crushed Satan's head. And yes, Satan is still alive. He's, he's in his kind of death throes. He's thrashing about, but the end is coming and it is guaranteed. And, and so now in this time, we are to surge forward with shouts of praise and plunder the camp of the enemy. He has been cast down and bound. It is time to surge forward to proclaim Christ's victory and to live in the wake of the cross and the resurrection and to call those who have once belonged to Satan's kingdom to the kingdom of Jesus. This is our call. This is our victory path. So brothers and sisters, don't lose heart in the battle, for God has provided us another David. Amen. Let's take a moment to ponder this passage.